Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. Yeah, and we don't, I mean, I guess we did walk yesterday. We walked yesterday. And we are at Dorida today. We are at Dorida Church. And so that is fun. Um, so yeah, what's astonishing you, friends? What's astonishing me? Sunday, two days ago. Um, three days ago. Three days ago. <laughs> sure. I'm on top of things. We were in worship, and I looked out, and I noticed for the very first time that um, half of the gathering was African Americans, the other half white. I mean, it was nearly 50-50, and it was beautiful and moving, and um, I think when I came here six, almost seven years ago, it was 90 95 percent white i mean mm -hmm. really literally two african-americans in the congregation and something beautiful has been happening and i saw it for the first time and it was a perfect day for it to happen because sunday was world communion sunday which was started in the presbyterian church 1936 as a way to uh, celebrate the unity of christians around the world and uh, regardless of denomination nationality ethnicity language blah 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 uh, and so um, I looked out and I just saw the beauty of this gathering. I couldn't help but think of that place in Revelation where John looks and he sees people from every tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And the uh, text on Sunday was from Corinthians where Paul is teaching the Corinthians about the Lord's Supper and he is admonishing them because they are divided along class lines, mm -hmm. and um, the rich would bring steak, <laughs> the poor would bring um, hamburger helper, and very little of it. Barley. Um, the poor brought uh, barley. Absolutely. and um, That's because we were preaching on Gideon, just if anyone right. wants to get the biblical nerd reference. Yes. <laughs> barley is the bread of the poor in scripture. It is the bread of the poor. And when they gathered, they gathered for a meal. And so the rich would have lots of food, wonderful food, rich people food, and the poor would have very little food. And then after that, they would go into the communion service. And the apostle says, I don't know what you think you're doing, but when you gather like that, when you gather with that kind of division, and scholars also say that most likely, since they were gathered in the home of a wealthy person, the wealthy people would eat inside in the dining area and the poor would be out in the courtyard so there was a little literal physical division as well and the apostle says when you gather like that it's not the lord's supper that you mm -hmm. um experience that you take and so he he's on them about christian unity and so i just had this moment where i was just grateful to god for this gathering this multi-ethnic gathering because it's very easy for us uh, in this time in our country to gather only with people who think like us, who look like us, and to be and okay have, with that, right? There's and a have certain, a life like us, And right? have a life like yeah. us. And there's a certain comfort in that. There's a huge comfort in that. Right. And we see no problem that really doesn't bring up um, uh, any kind of dissonance or conflict within people. We think it is okay. And the apostle is very clear this is not pleasing to God. This this division that we're comfortable with is not pleasing to God. And so I just had a moment of just feeling really blessed to be in this place where God is doing this work of bringing people who, you know, as, as you've said about 
uh, the Grove of people who have little to nothing in common except for Jesus, mm-hmm. right? If so, if they saw me and someone in the congregation walking down the street, you know, ha- for half the congregation, they would say, well, those two people have nothing in common. Yes, we have Jesus in common. Mm-hmm. And it is a beautiful thing to behold because I know um, I am not doing it. It, it is the right. work of the Holy Spirit. Right. Like, it's I, beautiful. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, you and I obviously are very called to multi-ethnic ministry, healthy and holy multi-ethnic ministry that is also multicultural. And when we've talked before, you can have a multi-ethnic community that is monocultural. And in a lot of spaces, you have multi-ethnic communities, but it's monocultural. There's one culture and it is the culture of, you know, dominant, the dominant culture in America, which is white culture. Um, and and we've, we've talked about that before, that there's just a way in America um, that the majority of the people agree this is good, this is bad, this is proper, this is improper, this is respectable, this is you know disrespectful, and and we particularly particularly if you are white, you don't think of that as white culture. You think of that as reality culture. <laughs> um, but as you know, and I think it it takes time as a white person to recognize that um, no white people have had most, if not all, um, until recently, of the power positions in this country. And so they have been the definers of what is acceptable, what is legal, um, what is honorable, what is dishonorable. And certainly other cultures have influenced that, but always within the um, discretion of people who headed up institutions and um, cultural as well as legal as well as, you know, all the other places. And so I think, you know, there are a lot of churches, mega churches that are multi-ethnic, but they are monocultural. And um, what we feel called to is a multi-ethnic, multicultural community um, because we believe (laughs) that um, healthy spiritual discomfort actually is what grows us. And I think, you know, and such a, the table is such a powerful metaphor and reality of what it, like food is and, and what you have and what you prefer and what you like is so, um, formed your preferences and ideas around that are so formed by your culture. And so, you know, to have a a space where everybody has the same and everybody likes the same and everybody agrees on the same is comfortable. But if we believe the revelation of scripture that God is reconciling all people and all things to himself, then that means we have to be, God is calling us into relationships with people who see reality different. And we have to do the really difficult, uncomfortable and risky work of figuring out, well, what of my understanding of good and holy is a revelation of the Holy Spirit. And what in my understanding of good and holy is just my, my culture and what do I hold on to and what do I let go of? And oh my goodness, if the Holy Spirit isn't with me and leading me, I could really, I could really get in a drift away, right? It's just really scary work that requires actually believing in the sovereignty of God and, 
That's hard. And it also requires us to believe and to trust that we have something to share with others. Mm -hmm. So I've noticed finally um, in our community that some of the African-American believers are starting to say, hey, there's this song that we used yeah. to sing. There's mm -hmm. this thing that we used to do. And it is, it's culturally formed, but to share it with others. It's so generous. It, it is, it's so a beautiful sacred. thing, right? It's mm -hmm. a beautiful thing. And in sharing it, it gets transformed. It gets, it becomes something not totally different, yeah. But it it takes on a new power to spiritually form everyone mm -hmm. in the room. And I just think, you know, multi-ethnic communities are a stumbling block. I think a cross-shaped stumbling block to everyone, right? In in the secular world, right? Like white people are offended and don't like them because you know, what does it mean? Why am I not good enough? Why don't people just act right? <laughs> and there are a lot of people in um, communities that are and have been um, marginalized who say, you know, no, thank you. Like, I don't want to share our sacred traditions with you. I don't want to invite you in. I don't want to be in relationship with you because I don't trust you and I don't believe that you will treat me well and I'm not interested and I'm complete in and of myself. And I think, you know, we have to recognize that that's just the fruit of trees that were planted in the name of white supremacy, right? And and for white people to expect a default of respect from all people is, is I mean, unless you believe that all of the systems and evils that were perpetrated against um black people and people of color if you believe they were justified then yes you should continue to expect everyone to respect you and honor you as innately superior but if you recognize that those things were demonic and evil then you should understand that across the generations our ability to see one another and trust one another and form relationships with one another have been damaged and it's going to take a long time of healing and repair and if you're not interested in doing it I mean that's your choice but you know you should you're not going to be a part of the healing then and I think um you know I think that's what because I mean I remember that moment at the grove when somebody came up to me afterwards and and said I think it was that communion like I counted today and it was 50 50 in the room and I wow. just remember I mean and that's a silly I mean it doesn't have to be 50 50 but I also think you know it matters when a community doesn't just have some folks of a different ethnic group but that there's real um you know well, listen the experience my own experience and the experience of most African Americans is okay white people are okay with us as long as there are not too many of us right right and so when there, there's this this critical point that where there's you know critical mass and then all of a sudden white people get really anxious mm -hmm. and so um, when you reach that place where it's 50 50 and you don't feel you don't sense that anxiety anxiety in the room 
that is a beautiful thing. And when you reach a space where people are like, this is my community. And yes. so I'm allowed to shape yes. it. Because I think as a, as a white person, if you are in a community that is historically white and it's quote, your community, and people come in and you're genuinely happy for them to come in, but you don't want them to change anything. And so when you get to a place and realize, no, everyone in this community is here because the Holy Spirit has led them here. And so there are things and ways of being and ways of worship and decisions that people would make that are not preferable to me personally, but I recognize that they are not contrary to the spirit of Christ. And I'm saying, I don't have to be pleased in all things because I believe that this community that we're called to bear with one or another in love. And so if that means that at the Lord's table, I choose to, you know, eat something that I wouldn't normally eat because the fellowship of believers is more important to me than my preference for the calories I put in my body, like that is a decision that honors the Lord. And when you say like, well, I will come, but I'm going to bring what I want and I'm not sharing it with anybody. That is not. And I think just, but I would just say like, it's funny because I, I had a really beautiful day of worship at the Grove. I'm transitioning to my astonishment. Is that sure, okay? It's yeah. related. Um, like Sunday was a really beautiful day for me at the Grove. It was a really powerful day. Um, and it's just really interesting because, I mean, I feel like we talk a lot about, and we, and it's what we're purposed to talk about is about multi-ethnic communities and just like the, the struggle and the joy. Um, but I also just feel like it's really important to be clear that like, it is hard. It's hard. It's really hard. And I, and Lots I think. Lots of sacrifices. Right. And I there's just. There's a cost. And I think it's really hard. I, I mean, and I, I don't know. I mean, I hope there's enough trust for people not to um, hear this. I, I, I'm not asking for sympathy. I am not saying woe is me in any way. I say all the time, I'm the happiest pastor I know. I am pastoring my dream church. I cannot believe the goodness of God. Like I can't, I cannot believe it. Um, and like, I think that white people who are interested in being part of multi-ethnic communities need to understand that sometimes you will question if, people of other ethnic groups in the community actually want you there or you know it's just hard because the damage the generational damage has just been so extreme and because if you are a white person and you are in relationship with people of color with black people and you are getting a glimpse into the reality of the struggle and the pain and the burden um, that it is to try to exist uh, with dignity in a world that has and continues to continually threaten and marginalize you. That, that's just a hard thing, right? It's hard. You will never begin to, I don't think, you will ever truly begin to understand your own whiteness until you are in a community that is multi-ethnic and you see how hard it is for people to love and accept you. Um, not because they're hateful, because they're there too. Right? And, and when you see the ways that people 
really have to struggle to trust and to love you. And that feels very unfair. And it makes you want to run back to a place where people don't see you as a white person, but just see you as a person, right? And like, that's just real. And I understand then why there are white people who just say like, look, I need to be in a white church because I don't want to feel this way. Like, I don't want to feel all these complicated feelings about what responsibility do I bear, you know, for being born into this world and the work I have or have not done to dismantle that. Like, it's just the privilege that I enjoy and, and how much peace have I made with the um, danger and injustice and precariousness of my brothers and sisters and how comfortable do I feel with the advantages that I enjoy just because I'm white that others don't like it it is just real all the time in a multi-ethnic community in a way that it's obviously theoretical in a mono-ethnic community and like not everyone is called to this work but I think sometimes we we do talk so much about the joy of it and the power of it Mm -hmm. that sometimes people might hear us and not understand that if it were easy, everyone would do it. And if it didn't cost anything, every like it costs something. And obviously it costs black people. It costs people of color, but I want white people to understand like it will cost you too. And if you're not willing to pay the price, then don't, don't bring those expectations and sense of entitlement into a multi-ethnic community because you have to understand that if you are accepted and this is true for everyone, but white people aren't used to feeling this way. If you are accepted in a multi-ethnic community, it is pure grace. Like you don't deserve it, right? And that is true for everyone, but it's not something that we as white people are used to feeling. We have a woman in our community, member of Dorada Church, when she came here, and I was her pastor in another congregation, a historically African-American congregation, and she's an African-American woman, when she came here, she worshipped in a way that was similar, congruent with um, the way she worshipped in that historically African American church. And after a after a couple of months, she came to see me, and she said, "I'm not going to be the entertainment. Yeah, I have a sense that people." like the clout, the clapping and the shouting and the speaking out that I do. However, it feels like I'm the entertainment and yeah. I will not be the entertainment. And so she shut that. And I, I understood where right. she was coming from and she shut that down for years, years. And this past Sunday, she picked up a tambourine while we were singing. I was mm-hmm. like, something has shifting. something has shifted. Yeah, and I think like it's important to talk about how hard it is because that's the only way that you understand that when it happens, there's no explanation other than the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. Other than the sheer grace of Jesus Christ and having a community of people who are saying there are real and authentic churches that are monoethnic and I could be at them. And in those places, I would love Jesus and Jesus would love me and I would be part of the kingdom and I would be furthering the kingdom. But I'm called to be here. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, Paul would say, 
has you know said in Colossians, like I'm grateful to enter into the suffering that has something to do with Christ, right? So this idea that like if you, you know, you not everyone is called to it, but if you are called to it, just to recognize that there's no one in that community that is not going to be asked to sacrifice, to pay a price, to sit with discomfort, and you. And the only reason to do it is because you believe that the Lord has called you there and you are not there to save anyone or fix anyone or honor anyone with your presence. You are there because you believe that the place that God calls you to be is the place where God will minister and bless you, right? So you can't, you can't be there out of a sense of obligation. It has to be like, this is my zeal for the Lord, like this is the lane that the Lord has traveled me in and I'm not turning back no matter what it costs. And just to know that there are days where you really grieve and wonder like, is this real Lord? Can we love one another here? Um, and I think, you know, I was just having a morning like that on Sunday just because of some stuff that had been happening. And, um, and, and then we went into worship and um, the team, I mean, our worship team is just so they're just such they're so beautiful and they struggle right like it is not easy <laughs> to lead well, worship together for, for as a several years team. tom bandy who is mm-hmm. internationally known as a church health expert was my coach and he said to me yolando multi-ethnic church is one of the most difficult things to do many fail because they are so difficult mm-hmm. it's really hard and and the and i think like the music is like it's sort of like the table back then. Like the music is the place Mm -hmm. where people are just like, I need what I need. I need what I like. Like I need the thing that quickens my, like, it's just, it's really hard. And, um, and our team has just born with one another in love over the years and like, and continue to do it. It's hard all the time. It is hard all the time to give one another the benefit of the doubt and to, you know, anyway. And, and they were singing this song about, um, it's called the battle belongs to the Lord. And it was such a um, moment for me of just remembering like, Hey, wait a minute. It is hard and we do fail and we are failing. And what we believe and what our joy comes from and what our peace comes from is the idea that like, no, the Lord is already doing this. Like this is already God's will and God is sovereign And this already is in the kingdom of heaven. These divisions have already been overcome and people already are existing in unity under the supremacy of not any ethnic group, but over under the supremacy of Christ, who is the only one for whom we can ever be have be supreme, right? Like that, that is the only place of real flourishing, like the Christ and and so what we are doing here on earth is just trying to participate in something that already is. And we participate it with from the place of knowing like, look, the battle belongs to God. Like God is doing this. This is God's will. So it's it whether we do it poorly or well, whether we fail at it or have these moments where we really experience, you know, the fullness of the glory of God, like it already is. And therefore... We can have peace because, you know, we're, we're flawed and we're failing and we're on wherever we are on our, on our growth trajectory. Um, 
but we can't, we can't undo what God has already done. Right. And it's not, so what we do matters, but, but nothing is at stake because Jesus is already on the throne. And what we are doing is saying, Lord, we're gathering together in this way because we, this is how we read your word. And this is how we know you in the spirit. And we believe this is what you're calling us to. And so like, it pleases you when we try to obey you. And when we stick with it, when it is, when it involves suffering and when it involves deep questioning and when it involves discomfort, like we trust that you are with us and that you are pleased by us and that you are growing us and that you are good. Like your power is good. And, and so I don't know, it was just a moment of astonishment of, uh, for me of saying like, look, cause sometimes it's just so easy to feel like it's this project. And some days you feel like you're getting an A and some days you feel like you're getting an F and you know, it, it is really, um, easy to get discouraged or to get full of false pride, but just to have the centering of like, no, what we actually believe is this is the revelation of all of scripture, but literally of revelation that, that we are gathered at the throne in there's unity in our diversity and in our full humanity. And exactly we don't become less of ourselves, but more of ourselves. Um, and so, you know, we just lean into that and trust that like, Hey, God is doing this. And so, you know, we're just waiting for the fullness to come, but we're not responsible for it. Yeah. That's one of the things that really sustains me in doing multi-ethnic ministry intercultural ministry it's it's the truth that as small and weak and foolish (laughs) foolish and mustard seed as um, this ministry is this is where god is moving this god Mm -hmm. is taking not only this congregation but the whole world the whole creation to revelation 7 right and and it is a beautiful thing it's it's a it's, it's a humbling thing to be a part of, to see it. It's like, oh, this is happening. At times, <laughs> um, it feels like we're moving backwards. Yep. But it is happening. Right. And I think it's like to go full circle back to, you know, your text on Sunday to be able to say, like, I get it. People come to the table and they bring what they have to bring. And they can't conceive that it will work in any other way but that they have known it to work in the past. And they're, you know, I get it that both you know, the people in that space were, were divided by class and to be able to say, well, but this is the way you set up the world, right? God, you've made the world for me to eat steak and for them to eat barley bread. And like, how, who am I to change that? And to be able to say like, no, actually everything we know about the world we live in is passing away. All of it. And so to come to this place of disorientation, and radical newness and radical vulnerability before the power of the Lord. Like it's not comfortable, but it sure is faithful to come to, to, to come before the Lord and think, Oh gosh, I have to question everything. And the only thing that's keeping me here is not my understanding, but my faith that God is good and that what God has started, God won't abandon. And that God really is um, who God is revealed to be not just in the pages of scripture, but in the days of my life. Look at a little soap opera plug there. <laughs> so we've been astonished this week by by many things. It's good. I mean, it's good work, but it is hard. It is hard. It is hard, and it's worth it. And all good things, I think, are, require hard work and sacrifice and to pay a cost. But I, I want to pay this cost instead of 
any other. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because we do tend to talk about how wonderful it is and Right. And, and I, people just need to know both because I think if you if you're like yes I want this and then you get into it and it's really hard and you're like oh well I guess I can't and just to really press on and say like no it will be hard and don't give up when you get to that because it's actually in the pain and in the suffering that you are changed and transformed and healed and able to be a part of this community that is a foretaste of the heavenly community and it, and if you you know we have this idea. And I mean, it, and it makes sense. Like, I'm like, oh, I just want to come to church to feel comforted. I just want in my church community, in my worship, I want to feel good. I want to feel loved. I want to feel accepted. And I want to feel comfortable. And I want to say, there's nothing wrong with that until, until there's everything wrong with it to well, say. But we also want to be healed. We want to grow. We want to be better human beings. And you can't have both. You can't have all comfort all the time and growth well, and healing. Right. And you cannot change without, you cannot grow without changing. Yes. You cannot heal without changing. And to say like, you should feel comforted by the goodness of God. You should feel the acceptance of Jesus. You should feel um, hope because God is good, but you won't always feel good about yourself and you won't always feel accepted by your brothers and sisters and the larger community. And at times it will be painful. And you won't always feel comfortable about your own life and your own choices. And that is just completely congruent with the witness of scripture, right? Like you come before the ever living God, you got to expect that there are some times where you're going to be like, woe is me. Woe is me. I am a people, I'm a person of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. And that sort of fear of the Lord is part of the experience. And you just can't, you can't avoid that. And if, and if the only time you feel that is about like, whoa, I'd feel like that if I had their sins over there, like that's a problem. So anyway, uh, what are you thinking about? Well, I am thinking about, um, the situation with the former NFL quarterback, Brett Favre and the scandal around, um, money dedicated for welfare uh, for the poor in the state of Mississippi. Um, if you haven't heard the story, um, he is being accused of misappropriating, um, misusing money intended for the poor in order to help build a volleyball stadium at the University of Southern Mississippi where his daughter um, was a student. I think she's moved to another university. And now. a volleyball player. And and she was a volleyball player there as well. And um, so as I understand the story, initially he pledged the money to build this building, this new volleyball um, stadium arena of several million dollars. And when it came time for him to pay out of his pocket, he then began to look for mm -hmm. other sources. And that's how um, somehow this money intended for the poor got pulled in, misused. Um, it's really. I think the term, and I'd like to coin it right now, <laughs> TM, is disappropriated. Oh, uh, what did I say? No, I mean, I'm just making it up. You said oh. pulled in a re I'm just saying, like, instead of appropriated or misappropriated, yes. it got disappropriated. Yes, yes. Um, so, anyway, 
uh, I did not realize that this story several years old, two yeah, years old. I that, didn't realize that, that either. Six people have been arrested already, and then there's a reporter in Mississippi who began to investigate investigate further because she saw a connection with this quarterback, Brett Favre, this former quarterback, and this money. And so, I mean, there are several things that come to my mind, several things I'm thinking about in relation to this story. Number one is um, in a time when especially people who are conservative are uh, wagging their fingers at the poor, saying you need to do better, you need to pull yourself up. Yeah, like, we are how dare, I'm not paying back your college loans. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, that in the poorest state in the country, we're taking money to build a, a volleyball court. Um, and at the same time, we have this national image that the average person on welfare is an African-American woman with many children and no father. Uh, when in reality, the average person on welfare is a white person. Um, also, it reminds me of how easy it is to have, I would, I, I'm, I'm going to give him the benef benefit of the doubt uh, to say that he had good intentions to build something on this campus because his daughter was there and played volleyball and made a wrong turn. I believe he saw the wrong turn and chose it, thinking that he could get away with it. That's just my personal belief. But how easy it is to, you know, when you when you have a certain level of privilege, when you have money, when he could have just written a check and it would have been done. Right. And it wouldn't have been a lot of money for him, right? right? But when you are at a certain place of privilege, how easy it is to think that you can just get away with it. Yeah. I mean, I think it's just so interesting to think of who the majority in the culture in our country, like who we instinctively trust and who we instinctively distrust. Because a black athlete who does something involving less money, hurting fewer people, well, they're... they're they're done forever. Yes, like they're a the garbage person. Over. They can yes. never be trusted. They can never do anything worthwhile ever. I mean, and I think, like, listen... I believe in redemption. Absolutely. I believe in second chances. I believe that all of us sin and fail short of the glory of God and that people are more than the worst thing that they've ever done. But we and live I, in the age of the double down. It's like, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> right. Well, and I also just think like people are shaped by their systems, right? So like I can caveat that I don't know what happened, but I can understand how it is hard to resist the ideas that you are special and that what you want is what's best for everyone. And when you have people coming to you and saying like, Hey, you need this and don't be a chump and you don't need to pay for it. Here's money that'll be wasted on some welfare Queens diapers. Like it'd be better used over here. And you know, you are, you're a maker, not a taker. And you're a kind of person we want to invest in. Right? Like I, I can understand just how susceptible it is. Like when someone has comes to you and says, hey, you're special and what you want and think and desire should matter more. I mean, I, that's hard to resist. And so I think that, you know, had we live, if we lived in a healthier culture, I think a person like Brett Favre, if he did what he's being accused to do, 
wouldn't have done it, right? Because they would just know like, hey, this is, this is gross and this is sick and this is unreasonable. But, you know, it's just as I think, you know, people, people are, people are shaped by the reality and the norms that they live in. So I don't think that this is the only important thing about this man. I don't think that this is the only defining thing for this man. Um, but I do think it's interesting for me how hard it was for anybody to believe that he could have done this and how hard it is for people to still believe that because he is a talented, wealthy, handsome, rich, white man who is well-spoken on television. So people are like, oh, well, I don't think he did it. He didn't know about it. Well, if he did do it, it's not really his fault, right? But if you see someone who is um, poor and black and not educated, you are just like, this person isn't trustworthy. This person made mistakes in their past and therefore they can't be trusted to do make any kind of significant contribution in the future. I don't have a good feeling about this person. You know, it's just, it's just interesting. And, and I don't say that to beat anybody up. I think it's important to have an awareness that one of the consistent messages of scripture is like what Samuel tells Jesse, like people look on the outward appearance and the Lord sees the heart. And I think, you know, it's this tricky line we walk as believers because we need to be spiritually discerning. (laughs) And we need to know that when we have a feeling about a person, we want to pay attention to it. And we need to be shrewd enough to recognize sometimes when these feelings about people run straight down the line with stereotypes, I need to interrogate my feeling, right? And like, I think the difficulty with which a person has like if it's hard for you to really f- figure out what you think about Brett Favre, but it's easy for you to think about, figure out what you think about Michael Vick, or I think there's a young man who is a player who stole like $30 of crab legs. Yeah. And this has been like the defining incident in his mm-hmm. career. Mm-hmm. If it's easy for you to know what you think about those two um, young black men, but you just, your, your mind can't, comprehend how Brett Favre could have done something, then I don't think you should beat yourself up about it. I think that you should recognize like, oh, this is a one way that I'm being able to see how I need the Lord's help to see (laughs) and how I really can't trust my own sight and my own feelings. I really need to submit them to the Lord. I really need to seek, um, just education and, and to get curious about, oh, if there's people who see things differently, I wonder why. And can I learn from them and not feel threatened if they have big feelings about this that I don't have? Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I just, it's just a heartbreaking story, but I do think it's very true that we have, there's this narrative that, the government only helps the poor and the government only helps people that are drains and losers on society and we need to fix it. Now, A, I think a government that was focused on helping the poor is a pretty biblical model for government, (laughs) but whatever, that's how I read scripture. Somebody else might read it differently. Um, But that, that narrative is just factually not true. The people who get the most resources from the federal government 
are the wealthiest people with the most agency. And the way you know this is true is like, where is there undrinkable water in poor black communities? Is there a wealthy white community where there's undrinkable water? Absolutely not. There are some poor white communities, right? So, I mean, what we know is that the more money you have, the more our systems are set up to work for well, you. We're still living with this myth of the trickle down that right. the people at the top need more because they need the agency and the freedom to create jobs and to create opportunities. Because wealth is an indicator of value and worth. Yes. So if you have money, that is an indicator that you have value and worth, that your ontological worth is the same as your monetary worth. And that's just not a biblical worldview. I feel how about it however you want, but it is not a biblical worldview. And so wrestling with that is really important to us. And it doesn't mean that you need to flip the script and say, okay, well now poor people are ontologically better than wealthy people. That's not helpful either, but just to recognize that we live in an unjust society and, um, and not everything is unjust, but we live in a fallen world. And if you don't believe that you can have a really hard time following the Holy Spirit. Well, and as followers of Jesus, if there is something the church, um, regardless of denomination, ethnicity, should be able to agree upon, it's justice for the poor. Right. But I so remember, I may, maybe, I know I've told you the story, but I've maybe even told you on the podcast, so stop me if I have. But um, when I was in the ordination process, which is a very long process, um, sort of the last step, the church, it was my church in Boston, and I was going to be ordained into an associate pastor position there. So I had been doing all of my prep through my home presbytery, which is in Louisville, but then the final step, you had to go to Boston, and you have to meet with this committee, and they ask you all of these questions, and um, and they're just people, like, they're checking to see if your theology is orthodox, and um, which is which I don't have a problem with, right? And, and actually, at the Boston Presbytery, I mean, it was terrifying when here in Charlotte, when candidates come up and they're, they're, they've like made it all the way to the very last step and the last step in their process is the presbytery has to vote and say like, yes, we agree, you're ready to be ordained or no, you're not. And and here, by the time you get to the floor of presbytery, it is scary. It doesn't feel like a formality, but it is. And we don't we don't ask any questions. Now in the Boston Presbytery, holy guacamole, like we stood up before the presbytery and anybody can ask any theological question you want. And it is terrifying because the presbytery at that time was very divided so that we'd have folks who were very conservative and folks who were very liberal. And there was a lot of tension and kind of people, you know, there's just, it, it, it was a lot. But what I, what they said, which I really do appreciate this one guy, um, gosh, I can't remember his whole name now. That really makes me mad. Um, but anyway, he would say, look, if we can't talk about these issues on the floor of Presbytery, where can we talk about it? And I'm like, you know what? Fair enough. Like, fair enough that you as a candidate should be willing to stand up in front of a group of people and say, here's how I understand the cross. Here's my theology of the cross. Here, because you're going to have to do it in your church, right? You got to be able to talk about these things. But anyway, I was in like the pre-committee stage with these folks. And, you know, this is your three years into seminary. You've passed six, five, six ordination exams. How many five. did we take? I don't know. Like you've been in this process for years, like whatever, the whole thing, psychological evaluation, like you are. It's a long process. It is a long process. And you're like the second to last step. And they're asking you these questions. And you're like, oh my gosh, these three people sitting in front of me, 
could vote no and then you're done, right? So it's nerve wracking. And I remember one of the guys was like, do you believe in the preferential option for the poor? Now at that point, and and shame on my seminary, I really had not heard of that term before. The preferential option of the poor was not something that I had heard in my seminary, but it is this idea in liberation theology, which I think is a completely reasonable biblical interpretation, that God has a preferential option for the poor. It does not mean that God loves the poor more than the rich. It does not mean that the poor are morally superior to the rich. It does mean that God is the God of the oppressed, right? That God sees particularly and hears the cries of those who are enslaved, of those who are oppressed. And if you don't like it, fair, but you have some problems explaining like um, the Exodus and Jesus's first sermon and, you know, Ecclesiastes and the prophets, right? Like God Matthew 25 often just shows up and says like, I hate your feasts and your assemblies because why is it because I don't like the incense you're burning? No, it's because you are, you treat the poor. you're defrauding the poor and you're stepping on the necks of the oppressed. And anyway, whatever. It's just a thing. But I hadn't heard about it. And so I was just like. Should have gone to Louisville Seminary. I know. I really. Okay. I mean, it's really funny because I studied. I just hadn't heard the phrase. But I just remember like stumbling and bumbling through because I understood that if I said yes, they were not going to pass me. Because even though that is so central to the biblical message, it is so threatening to the world as it is because we really want to believe that people who are wealthy are wealthy because they have earned it because they are morally superior because God has ordained it that way and that you know the disparity between rich and poor doesn't offend God so it doesn't have to offend or trouble us right and the witness of scripture is just not that right it's just not the witness of scripture um but we've done a really good job of domesticating not just the gospel but the whole bible anyway whatever i I passed (laughs) (laughs) and i would answer that question differently now um but yeah it's a i'm sorry i just went down a whole huge rabbit hole i don't even know how we got here i did not know that story oh well anyway yeah i was it, it was it was a whole thing but i think you know our I am not a communist. I am not a socialist. I am a follower of Jesus. And I think that followers of Jesus are supposed to be looking out for people who are suffering and becoming coming proximate to people who are suffering and looking for ways to um, be faithful and loving to those folks. Like when the Good Samaritan is walking down the road and he has resources to help a person who is beaten on the side of the road. And he doesn't say like, well, you should have been with a caravan. You shouldn't have been on this road. You shouldn't have whatever. He said, like, here's a need. And I have in my possession things to meet that need. And so I'm going to give what I can in this moment. And that's that's our job. Um, and you know, there's a story of Naboth's vineyard, a poor right. man, right? He had this vineyard and the king wanted it asked him for it he said Ahaz, no he said no because yeah. it was a it, it was a violation of covenant the deuteronomic yeah. covenant gave particular tracts of land to particular families or clans within the 12 tribes and it was the law that you might be able to use or sell that land for a time but it had to be returned to the people to whom God gave it which is i think in Joshua like there's all these super boring chapters in Joshua where it's like the 
from here to here goes to Perez and all the, sun, the like just like all the geography and all these names that are unfamiliar to us. And you're just like, why is this here? Because it was sacred because God set limits and it's not, and not everyone's the same, but you cannot just take what God gave to another. So that becomes really disturbing. If you take that seriously and think about treatment of Native Americans Correct. and their land, mm-hmm. then then you have to find some kind of workaround um, because it it turns upside down the theology of manifest destiny. Right. But I think it's just, it is complicated, right? Because on the one hand, central to our tradition is the story of God calling Abram out of Ur and sending him to a place that wasn't his own. Like your ancestor was Mm -hmm. a wandering Aramean, like God, the earth and the whole earth belongs to the Lord. Right. So, so that is part of our tradition. And I think it's what informs me when I think about what would the Lord have us do when people come, you know, when it comes to immigration, but also thinking about the Deuteronomic codes and saying, you know, cause there's a tradition and I think it's really helpful. It's not comfortable, but I think it's really helpful of doing land acknowledgements and just remembering that um, this land doesn't belong to us and other people lived here and wrestling with the story of, how we got to where we are and how entitled we feel to the earth that we think belongs to us and, and just how much brutality and bloodshed and suffering have come get us to this place. And I think, you know, people will dismiss land acknowledgements and say like, this is just, you know, wokeism gone amok. And I'm like, I mean, you, I mean, okay, like obviously you can think that way or you can say this comes out of our understanding of scripture that when the Lord gave land to certain tribes of Israelites, that was a sacred transaction that God expected people to respect in perpetuity. And then it's complicated because you that leads you straight to the continuing conflict between Israelis and Palestinians, right? So I'm not trying to pretend that any of this is easy, but I think um, we ought to have some deep um, reverence. And wrestling. And wrestling. And just to recognize that no understanding of the sovereignty of God can harden our hearts to the suffering of our neighbors or a stranger or our enemy. Not if... Jesus Christ is our Lord. Yeah. So. so what are you thinking about? I'm thinking this is a long podcast and we should probably quit right now. <laughs> I I mean, in all honesty, I guess I just have been thinking a little bit, and I don't want to talk about him for very long, but I've been thinking a little bit about our lieutenant governor in North Carolina, who's a man named Mark Robinson. And he's a very he's a lightning rod figure. Um he is a black man. He's the first black man to ever hold that position. He is very conservative um, theologically and socially, which is his right. (laughs) Um, And he has made a lot of news in North Carolina because over the summer, he went into a lot of churches and these were, um, I could be mistaken about this, but these are black congregations and he made a lot of speeches sharing his religious views about human sexuality. So he thinks that 
you know, it's an abomination to be gay and also about gender roles. Like he really believes that women um, should have a much, you know, he believes in a, in a patriarchy. Like he, he thinks that women should be prescribed to certain roles and um, that, you know, women should be under the authority of men and, you know, that he understands family in a, in a very defined way um, as a nuclear family between a, a one mother, one father, children, that's it. And, and any other configuration of family, you know, he, he believes as a threat um, and um, destructive and, you know, and, and so people are saying to him, Hey, um, how can you take an oath of office to uphold the rights of all North Carolinians, if you are in certain sacred spaces, saying like really extreme comments, like calling into questioning the full humanity of um, people who are gay or people who are transgendered um, and women, <laughs> and 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 he um, recently gave an interview, and I have not listened to the whole thing, but kind of the quote that kept getting featured was him saying, "Hey, I am." Uh, I don't know what his colloquial phrase is, but he essentially said, I am a grown up. And so I can park my religious opinions at the door when I come into the state house. And I guess I've just been thinking about that because I mean, on the one hand, I don't, so I, I do not read the Bible the way that Mark Robinson reads the Bible. Um, I, I know because I listen to him and take him seriously that Mark Robinson doesn't believe that I should have the role that I have or, or that I'm qualified to interpret scripture. Um, and you know, I understand that, um, when he's saying I'll, I'll, you know, I will obey the laws and I will make sure the laws are obeyed regardless of my religious opinions. Um, but I also think it's a little disingenuous because you are making your religious opinions really public in your role as the lieutenant government governor. So it's just, I mean, obviously, if if we have faith in Jesus Christ and it doesn't affect the way that we make decisions and do our jobs and see other people, then we don't really have faith in Jesus Christ. And I will just give Mark Robinson the dignity of his choices and take him at his word that, like, of course, your understanding of what is pleasing to God is your highest truth and you, you know I and I just think you know it's really it's it's really important not to I think it's disingenuous to say I need everyone to know this about me but it's not going to affect the way that I lead politically because of course it will and that's why you're telling the people that you want to elect you right and if so you are in churches proclaiming it preaching it mm -hmm. that means it is central to your point of view about the way the world should be right and let me be clear I, mark robinson is absolutely entitled and 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 responsible for reading scripture and discerning what its truth is for him and living according to that truth like i don't mm -hmm. i don't question whether he's doing anything you know, illegal. I mean, I disagree with him about how he reads scripture, but I, you know, I'm not God and he's not my servant. I'm just saying we, it's important that when people say, this is how I read scripture. And then they say, but don't, but that has nothing to do with how I lead or govern. That just is, you know, 
that offends me because it's not true. Right. Because either you're saying these deeply held beliefs, these these beliefs that I'm saying are deeply held truths of Scripture, well, I will proclaim them from the pulpit, but I don't believe them so much that I'll actually work them out in my legislative life. Right. No. If, you, uh, if, you weren't, if they weren't relevant, you wouldn't speak about them on correct. the campaign train. Well, here's my um, uh, thinking about him, because I have been... Let's, Early in my life, late teens, uh, early 20s, I people could have easily have labeled me a conservative. I might have even labeled myself a conservative. And the thing about being an African-American in those circles is that you you get a sense of um, there, there's a comfort that comes with that because the same theology that would seek to dehumanize you that would seek to marginalize you, that would seek to um, make you the other, is now being used to bring you in close. Mm -hmm. And you can become the mouthpiece of a theology that marginalizes others, but gives you a certain level of comfort, comfort in a system that really sees you as second class. And so mm -hmm. there, there, there can be, I'm, I'm not saying this is, definitely true for him but i'm saying it's probably true because i've been there um that it, it is it is seductive to be the mouthpiece for a theology for a political philosophy that mm -hmm. says it's those people who are wrong and we've got to fix those people we've got to change this in our society and our society would be better yeah uh, when that same theology says the same thing about you but because you are a mouthpiece for it it kind of shields you from that reality, yeah. but it it will not last forever. There will come a time when that comes crashing down, when when that shield is threatened, and that's a really um, psychologically, emotionally, spiritually hard place to be. And again, mm -hmm. I've been there. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think it's just important to note that part of the fallenness of humanity is that we are attracted to power. And we are attracted to hierarchies. Like hierarchies sure. are just, they're idolatrous for us. And and sort of to have surrender to the sovereignty of God and nothing else, you know, to, to um, repent of our desire to control and to be limitless um, and to have power and to make our own choices and other people's choices. Like that's a really hard thing to do. And, and it requires dying to self. It requires, I mean, it's a real spiritual death to say, no, ultimately God is sovereign and I am not, and I am not in control and I am powerless before the Lord and I'm surrendered to the Lord's will, even when I don't understand it, even when it's scary. And, you know, hierarchies are visible. They make sense. They, you know, within their system, they promise fairness right and in a if you live in a world where you're like ultimately whether i like it or not this hierarchy has all the power and i don't see it ever being overthrown and i'd rather be second class than sixth class or seventh class right like there's just an allure and it and it transcends gender and it transcends ethnicity and it's why people are attracted um and support systems that not just oppress others but oppress them like it's and just a human thing that's why i i really love and i know there are some people who 
um, would consider themselves progressives, progressives or liberals who don't like this kind of language. But that's why I love kingship language in I, relation yeah. to Jesus. Right. Because if Jesus is king, well, Nobody then he really defi- redefines right. what it means to be king. He redefines what it means to be in power. He redefines right. all of that in a way that just turns our current systems upside Up on, down. Yeah, and I right? think, like, that's why I am really... Same, and we talk yeah. this about this a lot. Like, we like kingdom language. This is why language. we should work together. I like talking about the sovereignty of God because inherent in that is resistance to the faux sovereignty of any human or human institution. And and I like, you know, I, again, I, it's like I've never read the Bible before, but I'm in this kick where I'm reading Colossians over and over and over again, and I'm really drawn to this language about the supremacy of Christ yes. because I see it as this resistance language to any other supremacy Power. systems, mm-hmm. right? Like just to say, like, no, for me, Christ is supreme. And then that means that the the values of Christ, the ways of Christ, the agenda of Christ, the vision of Christ is normative for me. And, and he's nothing so else. supreme that when they come to arrest him, Peter takes out his sword, you know, cuts off the man's ear. And Jesus is like, dude, that's not what we do. Right. We that's, do not how, not, that's not how we handle we this. We do not. And he heals the guy. Right. We do not. Violence cannot yeah. overcome violence, right? Like that's the whole mess. There is no such thing as redemptive violence yeah, in the kingdom I, of God. If I if I had a megaphone or a way to speak to all people who felt like they were being oppressed, crushed by a system, they just don't see a way out. That is, I would remind them of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and that the whole creation is moving to new Jerusalem, mm-hmm. new heaven, new earth. And it is, yes, it is beyond our power. We, we, he invites us to participate in ways, but ultimately it is his doing. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, that's why we have hope and that's why we resist. It's not because we think that in our own power we will win. It's because we think no the work of reconciliation and salvation is finished on the cross yeah. and it is being revealed and we are trying to hold on to what is eternal, which is currently invisible and to hold lightly to all things which are visible because they are passing away. Yeah, that'll and, preach. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it has been preached <laughs> anyway. Well, um, thanks for listening. We, we got to stop. So I am excited. Um, I've done some preparatory work and I want to just say, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at Dorida Presbyterian Church, because God is doing something beautiful and improbable and glorious in in this place, um, you should know, first of all, that it's spelled D-E-R-I-T-A and it's Dorida Press in Charlotte, North Carolina. You can look up their website and find out more. It is DoridaChurch.FaithLifeSites.com. That's S-I-T-E-S dot com. DoridaChurch.FaithLifeSites.com. You can also worship with them at 11 a.m. You can check out their podcast and their YouTube channel and watch um, messages, which is um, a great gift. And if you want to find out more about what God is doing at The Grove, you can go to our website, which is thegrovecharlotte.org. You can check out our YouTube channel and our podcast, um, The Grove Church 
podcast, The Grove Charlotte, I really should know which exactly it is, but I mean, just put it in your search engine, (laughs) The Grove Charlotte, uh, look for the green tree. And if you want to worship with us, um, that would be wonderful. We worship at 10 a.m. The dress code is wear clothes. Um, Thanks for listening and we will talk to you next week.